My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shade. Stacked, paved, engraved, and cast in stone, bronze, plaster, and concrete. Designed, mortared, and encoded secretly by brotherhoods known by many names, both general and specific. Some call them illuminated, some denounce them as a cabal. Regardless of your opposition, you too can take part in the unfolding enigma. This puzzling panorama stretches far and wide, but today, with pinpoint accuracy, we focus on demystifying landscape, narratives, and truth in the epicentral Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. On this land, what occurs does so with the entire Earth's participation. From Penn's Holy Experiment to the Philadelphia Experiment, from the Dome of the Rock to the Rocky Statue, and none other than the great Ross Ben joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast to discuss the great mystery Philadelphia and beyond. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode with Ross Ben. That's what Elias Boudino did. He created this as an instrument of debt, meaning our currency would have no recognition on the international stage unless we use it to pay off war debt, you know? And so that was written into the peace treaty by the United States and Great Britain by Elias Boudinot. But another thing that he did was he kind of made it national policy to recognize the birthright of indigenous people being like the indigenous of this land being Israel and that these were the ones who through divine birthright can enter Jerusalem and to incorporate that birthright and that uh, leg- that you know prophetic legacy into America and use it to create the new Jerusalem and this kind of you know when we see why and this has become re- relevant today right where Biden what is driving this dude's foreign policy? We're having water crisis in multiple cities and they not getting no federal assistance. But we sending a half a billion dollars to Is It Real? We sending a half a billion dollars to Ukraine, you know, the uh, Ashkenazi homelands. What, what's going on? What's going on? It really do go back to Elias Boudinot and his book, A Star in the West. 
Don't believe nothing Ross just said. Get that book yourself and read it. Deeper level it really goes back to the Punic, what they would call the Punic Wars, the wars of Rome versus Carthage, where the Carthaginians were master navigators, and the Carthaginians were a colony of Phoenicians. Phoenicians were a colony of Ethiopians, and they had a global trade network. You know, it's if you want to study their global trade network, look up the Wangara, W-A-N-G-A-R-A, right? That would be a title of the salt, the, the kings of Mali. They, you know, had the gold mines of the Wangara. And many people think the empires of Ghana, Mali, and Songhai, that they were just had dominion over the African Sahara. Now, these were global traders. You know, where the Americas were, yeah, man, this was a big part of their network. And this goes back to Solomonic times. This goes back. This is well recorded in the Bible. If, if, if we, you know, what does Solomon do? He linked up with Hiram Abath, who is an Ethiopian merchant they know as Tamarin, right? And Solomon gave Tamarin the choicest ports of the Mediterranean. It's modern day Tel Aviv being one of the most significant. And what did Solomon ask? He said, hey, you can have these choicest ports. Just let my priests travel on your ships, right? And Tamarin or Hiram, he had a fleet called the Fleet of Tarshish. And if we know where Tarshish is, that's what we call today the rocks of Gibraltar. They're the mouth of the Mediterranean into the Atlantic. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are on the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast. And with me is a very, very special guest who I've been looking forward to having on this show for quite a while now. I had the honor of meeting him in person in the place that he calls home. He gave us a wonderful, wonderful tour of a very special place that we're going to be talking about today. So without further ado, the great Ross Ben. Ross, welcome to the show. How are you, sir? Welcome. Thankful. Thankful. Right yeah. On. Glad for this alignment. Agreed. Agreed. All in good time. All in due time. You do a fantastic podcast slash video show with my friend Mike Wan, our mutual friend. Is titled From the 40th Parallel. You've written so many books, two of which have really impacted me in a, in a deep way. And we're going to be talking about those today. The most recent one, Free Your Mound and Your Mind Will Follow. And of course, the classic great mystery, Philadelphia, an urban act of magic. So for folks watching the video, if you haven't checked those out yet, Hit the link in the description. Go over to Ross's website and pick those books up. Great Mystery Philadelphia has inspired me to take a really close look at where I'm from, Connecticut, and, and dig into the, what's going on here and who founded this place and who were the movers and shakers back when this place got started. And I'm excited to get into that with you because you've done the, the work and inspired many people, not just myself, by doing just that, looking into where you're from and, and the history of, of this nation, right? So 
Where do you want to start today, Ross? You want to share a screen? You want to let the listeners know, like, how this all started for you? You know, when did you first, because you're not originally from Philadelphia. You're from D.C., right? So From D.C., and that, I guess, that was the thing. You know, Philadelphia has more public art than any other city in the world other than Paris, France. So, you know, D.C., you know, D.C. has its interesting architecture and public art and all of that. And there is a elder down there named Tony Browder. And he would have uh, what, what he calls Egypt on the Potomac Tours, where he did his own decoding of what's ultimately, I guess, Masonic architecture of D.C., you know what I mean? So he kind of put it in my mind to, like, pay attention, you know what I mean? But, and then when I came to Philly, oh, man, it just seemed to me like what I was looking at in Philly was was bigger and had, you know, deeper mysteries than what I saw and, and was familiar with in D.C., you know? And as I would connect with the community here, and I would ask them, like, hey, what, what do you think about, look at that, you know? What what you think about that, you know? And uh, they'd be like, huh, I don't I never even paid attention to it until you brought it up, you know? But there was another uh, brother. He's from Ohio. His name is uh, Noble Ampu. And I think he had a similar experience when he moved here. He was kind of blown away by a lot of the things that he was seeing and began decoding. And he's actually the vanguard in this. He put out a, a DVD and that, all right, so that's kind of dating it, right? It was definitely pre-YouTube called uh, Philadelphia Exposed, right? And we linked up around 2011, 2010, because you remember 11, 11, 11, 11, on 2011, right? Yeah, yeah. There was like kind of this global, uh, people wanted to come together and honor the moment of oneness and invoke like a oneness, you know, in humanity, yeah. right? So there were elders here in Philly who were like, yo, we have to do it here. We have to do something like that here in Philly. Because <clears throat> most of the other places in the world it was happening, it was like Machu Picchu and Great Pyramids of Giza and uh, Sedona, places where they're kind of associated with being energy places, Right. So these elders were feeling like, yo, we got to do it in Philly, but why? What, like, why, what, what is it that we got to have it here, right? So 
we all came together and started researching. We all had our kind of our lane, you know. But what that did was that started a relationship with me and Ampu where even after the event, we just kept researching, you know. And right, Philadelphia is known as Shots of Moxon, place where the kings meet, Penn Treaty. Penn Treaty Park is supposedly the place where, uh, you know, that is Shots of Moxon, where the kings meet and where William Penn met with Chief Taminen and, you know, but my R, I should say R, me and Ampu's research, because he, he's kind of grown into other areas. He's, he not only, he may be based in Philly or have a base here in Philly, but he's not here that much. And his research has moved on to other things. I've, he carried the banner and didn't let it fall and kind of passed it on, you know? So our research showed us that geomantically, earth grid significance, historical, cultural relevance, it it was the area in this land where the queens meet that is called Nitibunk, which is uh, basically five neighborhoods contemporary, you know, today. Uh, Germantown, Mount Airy, Chestnut Hill, East Falls, and Worcester. That, uh, yeah, man, this this is this is like some of the most sacred land, you know, even just as far as the global mound matrix, the indigenous of this land, the Lenape. This is where the queens meet, the Queen's Council. When you study Algonquin society, the language family of which the Lenape are part of. Shechem's, which are the kings, they're more spokesperson, they're not a decision maker. You know? Uh, if you really want to see how that plays out, because the queen's history of Shaksamoxen and Lenape Hoken have kind of been wiped out, right? But we could study Pittsburgh and Queen Aliquippa when George Washington wanted to move his troops up into the Ohio Valley, coming out of Virginia, and he had to go through Aliquippa's land, you know. Washington wanted to work this out with some, uh, you know, the, the Shechems, the kings of that land. And they were like, nah, man, you got to go talk to Aliquippa. You know, because it was the Queens. The title has been anglicized to be Winona, right? But I think the uh, Algonquin pronunciation would be more like Winona, 
or Ununa, right? Uh, yeah, this land is where the queens meet, man. And this is the real magic that mm. Philadelphia pulls on, you know, the city, what them call the city of Philadelphia. Yeah, and before, and before you... tie it into... Just to, I'll, I'll seal up by tying it into the show me and Mike have been doing. Uh, the the Order of the Rosy Cross or the Rosicrucians, they in their lore, this land has been deemed the 40th parallel in the wilderness. That's what this land is. Yeah. Now... Before we get too far into the, the names and the characters in this really, really colorful story, I just want to comment for people who might not be on the East Coast or may not have had the opportunity to ever visit Philly. I should say, when I was there and we met up and you gave us a tour, I mean, unlike any feeling I've had in a in the confines of a city, what I felt in that park that day. You know, I'm I'm a hiker. I love being outside. And you would imagine, you know, being in a park in a city, you would notice a difference, right? But as we walked through that wilderness, it felt wild. It felt like, you know, we could turn a corner and, you know, a panther could jump out at us. Like we right, were, right, right. We were and maybe maybe something could have jumped out at us. It might have been a human and not a panther, but it's certainly wild in that area and and the energy that I felt sitting in that place you brought us to. What you told us was a mound. I mean, wow, it was excellent. And since then, I've tried to carry that intuitive sort of feeling that I got on that mound into other hikes to see if I could sort of sense that same energy in other places. And I don't know how sharp my senses are, but we found a few things since then. And I don't want to show you now, I'll show you later, but I just want to comment for people who can't wrap their head around that, like how mystical these little interstitial zones can be. I think a city almost heightens the wildness of a place like that because mm. it's sort of anachronistic to its surroundings. It's expressing itself with so much resistance around it. It's almost like compounded by the pressure. Yes. Well, part of it, too, is the geology of that land where it's uh, pre-Cambrian Earth. They would call it a, Pange a Pangean microcontinent where in tectonic plate movement and the drifting of the, of the continental uh, shelves, right? It's not like uh, they just float apart. They actually move like uh, conveyor belts. What's on the top rolls on the bottom Right? So imagine Pangaea, all one continent, all you know, all the land masses, one continent, but there's a mountain on Pangaea that's so massive, so wide and you know, encompassing 
that it it never rolled under, but actually got like broke off and then melded to the Atlantic seaboard. So that's what uh, within Philadelphia, what they call the Wissahickon Gorge or the Wissahickon Valley. That's what it actually is. So there's a <clears throat> there's a fault line up in that uppermost neighborhood I was telling you about, Chestnut Hill, right across the street from Chestnut Hill College, right? And, uh, like, it's an obvious fault line, too. It seems like a seam or a fold in the earth, like two folds of the earth meeting, and it'll oftentimes have water uh, bubbling up from it. Right. And uh, you could have one foot on Appalachia, which we know is Appalachia are old mountains in relation to the Rockies. Right. And you could have this other foot, your other foot on this Wissahickon Gorge, this pre-Cambrian earth, which is, you know, hundreds of millions of years older than Appalachia. And another evidence of it, let's say we wanted to uh, find the minerals of this region. And Appalachia, like, you know, like the garnets and the quartzes and, you know, some of the aluminum silicates that might have crystallized with enough heat and pressure on that Appalachia side we'd have to dig about 30, 40 feet down. In the Wissahickon Valley, garnets, tourmalines, uh, straubite, kyanite, several varieties of aluminum silicates you could find right on the surface because the Wissahickon Valley has been exposed to X amount of millions. I, I, I don't want to tell you the tell you an exact number and be wrong, but X amount of millions of more years of erosion than Appalachia. So the 30 or 50 feet of earth you would have to dig down in Appalachia to get find these crystals, that's all been eroded off in the Wissahickon Valley. And so this, again, this is where the Queens meet. This is, uh, you know, a Pangean microcontinent. So a lot of what you were feeling is walking on this ancient earth and how it's played out historically and like the significant significance of it historically this, this is where George Washington was consecrated, okay? Meaning, because the U.S., birth of the U.S., was a rebellion against kingship, the, the, the leader couldn't be crowned but they still wanted a divine anointment, some ceremony, some ritual 
in which, you know, the omniscient, omnipotent, uh, omnipresent one could put its blessing on the new leader, right? So, and and this is all in Masonic lore. This is the place that the Wissahickon holds. They say the Wissahickon is to a Mason as the Ganges is to a Hindu. Okay, this is a part of Masonic lore. Okay? And the reason being, this is where George Washington was consecrated by one of the monks of the order of, you know, the hermit, uh, Johann Kelp. Mm, the effort of right? yeah. So that's how the Wissahickon has played out historically and, and the, the significance of the land. Right. Right. This queen's meeting place. This is really incredible. I mean, we're, we're given this sort of patriarchal vision of history, but you're absolutely right to point out that in uh, Lenape culture, amongst most of the Algonquin tribes, it would have been a matriarchal hierarchy predominantly. There may have been exceptions, but for the most part, it was a society run by the council of women, of elders and, and mostly women. So we have this sort of clashing of cultures as the new Atlantis plan, the Western design unfolds. And Philadelphia seems to be the hot spot where, you know, a lot of what created America took place. Like you said, the Wissahickon is to the Mason as the Ganges is to the Hindu. Well, what is the Mason's crowning achievement? Well, it's this, you know, creation of British Israel, right? Or, or this new New World Order, this new Atlantis, right? This this place where men, man can come and, you know, sit back as God comes and brings his final judgment. And, you, you know, because we set up this land, taking the place of the Algonquin, we're supposed to be saved, right? Because in a lot of their minds back then, the Algonquin were the Ten Tribes or the Lost Tribes of Israel, right? So there's this sort of connection syncretically there where they think, okay, we're going to come into this land, we're going to sort of swap out the inheritors of this prophecy so that we can inherit the prophecy. And you use a word that I think, you know, million-dollar word isn't used enough, and that is anathema, to make as if it did not exist. And you know, what's really sad is you walk along really any city in the East Coast and all that's left of the Lenape and the Algonquin people are, you know, statues and memorials, casinos mm. and powwows. You know, we don't mm. really, there's there's no wigwam still standing. There's no, you know, ceremonial fires burning. It, it's just gridded mounds. So, yeah, it's it's a tough it's a tough history to really look at if you have, you know, even a small shred of empathy in your heart. And I know you have much more than that, but it's way older than just the Algonquins. I mean, this is something that happened to the Etruscans, right? The Rome was initially 
built on the flattened mounds of the Etruscans. And then Britain did the same thing when they took over England from the Druids, right? So this is a sort of old process that's being brought from the ancient past into the future uh, with the founding of New Atlantis. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one thing you'll see here in Philly, and if you decode the public art, one of the biggest themes, because I, before I even say that, right, let me even back it up a little bit, and that Philadelphia is considered to be a museum without walls. Okay? So that those 5,000 pieces of public, registered public art that are, you know, scattered throughout the city, they're not randomly placed. The relationship of the placement of the pieces of art to one another and where they are, they tell the deeper story. And that deeper story is that the clash of the titans, the titanocomy, the, the the war of the netters of the Nile Valley going back, what, uh, 3000 BC? And then with the major uh, intermediate periods, the first and second intermediate period, and how that, uh, what, deteriorated into basically pirate rule in Greek and Roman times and how that has played out to today. Uh, that's what, you know, that's, that's what Philadelphia is. It's, it's an embodiment of the legacy of almost 5,000 years of war and battle on planet earth of forces that are, you know, human, but also, you know, what we, what in mythology have been referred to as gods or netter, you know, and Philadelphia is actually like, you know, if you read great mystery, Philadelphia, the subtitle is an urban act of magic. Because it's through creating Philadelphia they've been able to make the wars that are occurring today and the history of the United States a continuum of the ancient Titanocomy, you know? And so that's really the biggest theme you find in the public art. And I will just mention two historic characters that are very important in this. The, and, and we'll start with the Egyptian one. Okay, Ramesses II of the 19th Dynasty. Ramesses II, and I even have some slides. Let me, uh, you said I could share my screen? All right, this is kind of, building on what you were talking about, manipulating timelines, right? Control, manipulation, and determination of historic and prophetic timelines is the ultimate form of magic. 
There's four nefarious ways this is conducted. <laughs> one benevolent, one beneficent. So now, there's four nefarious ways you to manipulate the historic and prophetic timelines. Right? You, are, you started mentioning one, anathema, which is to make as if it never existed. That's what the Roman Empire attempted to do with the Book of Enoch, you know, which was unavailable for a very long time in the Roman world. Because not only did they uh, destroy all copies of the Book of Enoch, but any other scripture that referenced Enoch or Enochian prophecy in too much detail, they destroyed those books as well, right? And that's what came to be known historically as apocrypha. Okay. You know, the hidden books. Right. Another way is to just pervert or distort prophetic teachings. A good example of that would be, as it relates to what we're talking about today, would be Jane Leeds. Philadelphia, the Philadelphian prophetess and her book, uh, which has you know just become to be known as the Philadelphian prophecies. Mm. Jane Lead was a, I guess you could call a Rosicrucian student of uh, Imperial England, you know times, mm -hmm. who. Uh, wrote several what would have been called prophecies that, you know, supposedly brought Philadelphia into being. Right. Okay. I'm not going to get all deep in that today, but I'm putting that, planting that seed for y'all to research mm. where this is a great example of, like, she would say, well, I'll just use one example, Right. And during a question and answer period, uh, after one of her interviews, I mean, uh, you know, one of her uh, discussions, right? Someone asked her, hey, what scripture is inspiring these prophecies of calling for, for making this new city in the, in the new world? Now, in my mind, if you know prophecy, Phil, the Church of Philadelphia has its own prophecy, Revelations chapter 3. I would think anything you're doing to bring forth Philadelphia, Jane, uh, Jane Lee would be inspired by that prophecy. No, she was on the prophecies relating to Tyre and Carthage and the piracy they were engaging in in the Atlantic. It was these prophecies that were inspiring her, you know? So check it out. Very interesting. Another way you can manipulate a prophetic timeline is to read prophecy then enact historic events to prevent that prophecy from being fulfilled. Okay. 
The last one, which is the most relevant, read prophecy, then enact historic events that mimic fulfillment of the prophecy, but ultimately serves a different intention. Okay? So these are, you know, the nefarious magic that has been enacted in the Philly. This is what it's all about. And it's spelled out in the public art of the city. Okay? Uh, I'm going to, here we go. This is what I wanted to get to. But this, like, uh, the roots of this run deep. The roots of this time manipulation run deep. Mm. And even how we know the Philadelphia experiment, the use of technology and the use of time lensing to see possible future timelines. All this started here in Philly. How how and why is that? It's not coincidence. It's not coincidence, you know? This is the culmination of thousands of years of manipulating timelines. Going back to this character right here, Ramesses II, the third pharaoh of the 19th dynasty who did a lot to attempt to manipulate the past of ancient Egypt, to rewrite the past of ancient Kemet, and to say that the original Netter, the original god, was Ptah, not Osar, okay? To do this, he created several temples, one even called the Osirian. So it was supposedly a temple to Osiris. But on the king's list, on this temple, the king's list started with Ptah and then went directly to all the dynasties that supported the Memphites because that was the center of Ptah, rewrote history, particularly of the 18th dynasty, to write out the Thebans' role in in founding Kemet, right? But what's interesting is, on the Osirian, this is how we know Ramesses II had time-lensing technology, This is the temple where you find glyphs of the helicopters and spaceships and, excuse me, airplanes and boats on our current historic timeline. Yeah. Wow. That even looks like a a blow. This character (laughs) is very important. Yeah. Right. But now his technology seemed to have fallen in Ptolemaic times. Greek, Greco, Roman rule of Kemet fell into this, these characters' hands. The Dauphines, okay, under the leadership of Ptolemy Philadelphus, okay? Ptolemy Philadelphus is a very important historic figure, okay? He was known as the Dauphin, 
where we get the word dolphin or, you know, sea mammal, right? Also the idea of the Delphi, the oracle of the mother's womb, as well as Philadelphia, lovers from the same womb. Ptolemy Philadelphia's got this name from uh, marrying his sister, okay? And this was in Ptolemaic Egypt from about 283 to 246 B.C., all right? So this dude married his sister, became known as the Philadelphi, right? And... Yeah, another important thing this this character did was that, let me see if I can find it. Well, all right, well, here, we'll just talk about, point this out, that he was the sibling lover, married his older sister, Arsinoe II, and they were given the title of Philadelphia. All right? Now... One of the things that he did that's very important is that he founded the Library of Alexandria and was responsible for translating Hebrew text into Greek. Okay? And when he did that, he changed prophecy. He manipulated prophecy so that his royal house received the prophecy of the Church of Philadelphia. This is how Philadelphia ended up in Revelations. Those who don't know, uh, William Penn didn't name Philadelphia because it means city of brotherly love, like in the context we think of, right? No, he named it an attempt to fulfill the prophecy of the Church of Philadelphia to be those who receive grace and blessings on Judgment Day. Yeah, And this goes back to Ptolemy Philadelphus, this dolphin, this uh, lover of the same womb, right? Who wrote himself into... Revelations chapter 3, as the Church of Philadelphia, being those who kept the faith and received the, the covenant and divine blessings on what is called Judgment Day, right? And we're going to fast forward to our boy Ben Franklin. Look at his uh, heraldry. What you see right there in the middle, dolphins, right? And the University of Pennsylvania, right there on their heraldry as well, the dolphins. So Ben Franklin was all about what? Coming in the image of Ptolemy Philadelphus, resurrecting Ptolemy Philadelphus. He came as a dolphin who enlarged the Greco-Gaul Empire through establishing universities and libraries. 
Remember we said Ptolemy Philadelphus founded Alexandria. And here, Ben Franklin, when he came to Philly, what did he do? Established universities and libraries. Okay. And uh, I'm going to pause at this point. If you have any questions, you know, or, yeah. or feed black. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. It, it's so interesting because uh, for me, you know, before I met Mike Wan, I was obviously aware of your work and his work through the higher side chats and forbidden knowledge news and other great podcasts like those. And I, I, I had a friend who's Egyptian. She was stuck in Connecticut because of the whole scamdemic. And she's from Alexandria. I gave her a ride uh, to the airport in Washington, D.C., sort of condensing a long story short here. But I dropped her off at the Allen Dulles Airport at the height of COVID and then drove through D.C., drove through Philadelphia, stopped on the Susquehanna River, said my piece. And then a few months later, I'm podcasting with Mike Wan and, and starting this journey. So the synchronicities abound uh, for me here, <laughs> learning that this Egyptian connection is so steeped in Philadelphia. Now, you said uh, the Dauphines wrote out the Thebans, right? Now, the Thebans, weren't they connected to the Moors and through St. Maurice, uh, St. Maurice being someone who came Absolutely. from... Absolutely, the Theban legions of St. Maurice. Absolutely. Okay, so moving history forward, you know, we we see Rome sort of go through many different iterations after 476. They're sacked by the Gauls, and I think they're sort of rebuilt with Charlemagne and the creation of the Holy Roman Empire, right? And then you see this sort of power shift northwards towards Bohemia and eventually settling in Prague, where you write about how the, the Huska Castle is like this, you know, basically like a Tower gate of Babel. <laughs> or Gate to Hell, even better. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we have this exact sort of idea going on with the Benjamin Prank. Franklin Parkway being described as sort of the gateway to hell. And if you've ever been stuck in traffic on that road, it is certainly hellish. So, mm. yeah. <laughs> well, the Rodan Museum on the Ben Franklin Parkway. And I even, let me see if I can find those images because I probably... While you're looking for that, another synchronicity that uh, appeared was with New Haven and and Philadelphia both being sort of centered around prophecy or this idea that, that we're going to, you know, foment or, or be on the good side of God's judgment. One author I read wrote that the founders of New Haven were hyper-Calvinists, which, you know, they were a certain persuasion of protestant christians that believe that they were sort of like hell's angels you know ordained to do devilish things in order to push god's will forward i don't know if there were many of them in philadelphia it seems like the religion that was a little more popular down there was uh quakers which quakers, quakers yeah. have a, a altogether different reputation but the the calvinists they do connect 
in many ways to what you write Mormonism contributing to, which is this evangelical Christianity. And really, Calvinism was sort of in that milieu of influences that created Mormonism. But you say Mormonism is really like America's sort of religion. It's, it's an American religion, and it kind of includes a lot of these ideas that were built into the layer cake of Philadelphia. Yes, I would uh, characterize all of those orders as Heraclean Judaism. Or, you know, crypto Judaism. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, you know. Right. And it does seem like... I know that there's probably debate and rightly so should be debate about that but that's what i would uh that's how i would characterize that mm. you know mm. so i did um i do have something queued up as far as the rodan museum where is that is in philadelphia where the gates of hell are memorialized and researching Researching the gates of hell here in Philadelphia is what led me to Houska Castle in Czech, um, in Prague, Czechos. I know it's probably got a new name, a new it's a new republic, but growing up it was Czechoslovakia, so that's what's kind of stuck in my head, you mm-hmm. know. But that is where the original gates of hell are, the Rodin Museum is memorializing Houska Castle. The only other place I found it memorialized that, uh, like, yeah, the connection to Houska Castle is kind of undeniable because it's even an architectural replica of it, Hmm. is the gates of hell in Paris, France. That's the entrance to the... uh, What's that large crypt, you know, the under... Oh, the catacombs? The catacombs, thank you. The catacombs of Paris. To get in there, you got to go through these gates of hell. And uh, and is is it this triptych design that we're seeing here behind that bright blue sign there where you have like three arcways in the center entrance? Now, I don't know if this is as much as a replica of Houska Castle as the Parisian gates of hell are. Mm. This is a Roman, Romanesque entrance into the courtyard of the gates of hell. But what I wanted to show y'all how Ben Franklin is tied in with this is, this is the iconic statue, the thinker. This is on the Ben Franklin Parkway. Right. And uh, how do we know the thinker opens up the gate to hell? Because when we look at the actual gate of hell, the thinker, this is like the uh, can you see my cursor? Mm -hmm. This is like Earth. Everything up here is above. Everything here is below. Mm -hmm. And we see the thinker. 
is right there, microcosmically, you know, microcosmic projection of them. So uh, Hauska Castle in the 1300s, originally, well, let me, I'll even just back up a little bit. Hauska Castle was built because, not because it was on a trade route or, you know, they needed to create a fort that, uh, you know, were defending external invaders. There was a giant hole in the earth that um, entities would come out at night and terrorize the locals. So they built Hauska Castle over this hole to contain these entities within the inner earth, right? In the 1300s, for whatever reason, who knows, uh, characters from Imperial Rome started having uh, rituals in Hauska Castle. One of the most significant probably was Pindar spawning the 13 clans that I guess ultimately we would call the Illuminati or, you know, they've been known by many names throughout history. I think the most glaring example that you could research would be Vlad the Impaler. How, you know, there like there was this guy, but he was different. This dude like eating people and drinking blood. You know what I mean? Where where'd this character come from? He came from this bloodline that was spawned in Hauska Castle in the thirteen hundreds. Uh, the Hellfire Club in England were, they was down with these boys, you know, what can we say? And of course, Ben Franklin was a member of the Hellfire Club. But I'm giving these details because apparently they were, they were also conducting experiments in Hauska Castle. And there's these legends that they would offer prisoners their freedom if they allowed them to lower them into the pit, into the hole, right? So they say uh, at, at one day, one day they lowered this one character and they heard him screaming, heard him yelling. They raised the uh, platform he was on back up and he was gone. You know, there's no no trace of him. They lowered another person down. And there were these sulfuric, gaseous emissions that would come up. And they say these emissions were kind of intoxicating, right? So when they lowered the guy, they heard him start screaming. They... So they brought him up quickly. They didn't want him to face the same fate as as the first one. So, of course, he appeared terrified. 
but he was also intoxicated by the fumes that he was breathing being lowered in there. And in his intoxicated state, he gave the vision for Philadelphia. What became Philadelphia? An industrial, urbanized center in, you know, the West that would be what would open up the gates of hell to the rest of the world, ultimately. Wow. And this is what supposedly inspired the Hellfire Club, the formation of the Hellfire Club, and gave them their ultimate mission to, uh, and I think this ties in a lot. I heard you mention British Israel under the cloak and banner of British Israel. Uh, This is how the Hellfire Club manifested that vision. And because Ben Franklin was such an integral part of it, this is why he's memorialized as the thinker at the Rodin Museum who opened up the gates of hell. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, if I may jump in for a moment, the please really interesting connection to, you know, all of this. I mean, there's so many, but for me personally, looking into New Haven, I found out Benjamin Franklin had an honorary degree from Yale University, and his friend Ezra Stiles was the seventh president of Yale University. He gave him that honorary degree. They both were members of the Society of Cincinnati, which you talk about in Free Your Mound. And Ezra is one of the first learned men in the New World, so to speak, to study the Kabbalah. He actually brought over a rabbi, one of the first rabbi in the New World, and they studied together in Providence. Ezra Stiles helped found Brown University, which is another Ivy League school. And all of these Ivy League schools are connected on this sort of ley line. Uh, And I believe it's right along the same fault line that we were discussing earlier. And back in the, you know, early days of the, the colonies, they called this line Satan's axes because everything West, everything West of the line would have been, you know, still, you know, uncharted wilderness Everything east was seaports and settlements, right? So this Satan's axes has also been described by uh, author Peter Shampoo as the city ley line because it goes all the way down to Teotihuacan in Mexico City. So all of these cities, Atlanta, D.C., Philadelphia, Trenton, New Jersey, New York City, New Haven, Connecticut, not Providence, but it's close enough, and Boston. They're all on this ley line. And what happens in these cities? I mean, you and Baltimore, too. I can't leave out Baltimore. You know, what happened? New York. Did you mention New York? Yeah, of course. Yeah, New York. I mean, all of these cities are, are, you know, torn up with crime and, you know, everything that comes along with being in an urban area, right? And I, I think there's a certain magic there and you know i wouldn't have been able to put this together without your help you know this sort of piece that you put together with the urban geo necromancy right or the you know the idea that they're taking these grids and actually 
sort of harvesting the energy, the organic energy and filtering it into this, well, this plan of the Titans, this, you know, this war of the Titans, really. And you see it in their architecture. That's how they're able to to embody it without saying too much, because as you write in your book, you know, if they came out and said it in plain English, you know, there'd be too much resistance. They have to sort of get it out subtly. So they have to cloak it. Right. right. Cloak it in the language of the muses, mm. which is art, architecture, and archetype symbols. Heraldry is a big part of it, too. You know, that's the language they use to say a whole lot of shit right in front of our face, you know? And uh, <clears throat> first we have to choose to pay attention. And then if we choose to pay attention, we still have a lot of research to do. To de You know, we have to learn the language of the muses. Greco-Roman mythology is a big part of that. And, you know, a lot of people have aversions to that. It seems like, well, to some hoity-toity, you know what I mean? Like, nothing, We why would we want to study that? And you got a lot of ones who, uh, they want to study Kemet. They want to study ancient Egypt because they have a, ethnic affinity with it and they and then they feel that they are, should be polarized against studying Greco-Roman mythology but it's the language they're using you know so what we have to do is learn Greco-Roman mythology and then make the syncretic connection to the Kemet the comedic netter, because that's really where they're played out. What they call the titanocomy is the Greek accounting of comedic history. We do our best to attempt to decipher all of that in the great mystery Philadelphia. You know, like, okay, we see all these Greco-Roman deities in a pediment on the art museum right at the pinnacle of the steps, Rocky Balboa runs up, right? Yeah, man, we need to be able to, like, what What are they saying with this? We need to be able to articulate it and also relate it to what actually happened in ancient Kemet. Why? Because the clash of the Titans continues. This, They see what's going on in Philly and in all these cities and, you know, the United States' role in history, world history. This is all, it's its an ongoing battle. This thing ain't never stopped from ancient Kemet, you know? And just like if I could say real quick how the Americas ties in, the, 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 the clash of the titans in ancient Egypt or the, for, the forces of Ptah out of ancient Memphis or Menephor, right, against the Thebans. At, at diff, and, and they were like the Asarians. The Thebans are the Asarians. At different points of comedic history, 
the Thebans fled to the Americas as a place of refuge, you know? And a lot of the indigenous are aligned with the ancient Thebans. The Lenape would be one, I would say. Why do I say that? Because the emblem of the Thebans was the black vulture. And we know the importance that the black bird or the black crow holds in Lenape tradition, right? So I see the black vulture and the, the black vulture of the Thebans and the black crow or the black bird of the Lenape being one and the same, you know? And uh, so you had the Thebans, those that were down with a SAR. And if we would say, how did, how did the lifestyle different between the Memphites and the Thebans? The Thebans were naturalists. The Thebans wanted to live ecologically, environmentally, live with nature. The Thebans, excuse me, the Memphites, technologically driven, you know? So, Ptah, you know, Ptah is the, the craftsman, the smith. And, uh, yeah, his partner was who we know biblically as Baal. And Kemet, uh, who's known as Harishah. But all of these ones, all of these Netta were aligned with the Memphites. And the Greco-Roman Prometheus is the Kemetic men who Memphis is named after. Him and Ptah very closely aligned. And, you know, Prometheus is the one who uh, manipulates the future and gives man electric fire. That's, that's a key thing that is often left out in the discussion of mythology, that Prometheus didn't just give fire, like kindling fire to humanity. No, he gave electric fire, electricity, the technology of electricity to humanity. And what did Ben Franklin disco discover? Right, right. With yeah, his yeah, kite yeah. and the I'll key. Let me show you. Let me see. Let me pull this up. And that is this one. That that story is given to kids in school like very. Uh, you know, with so much confidence, like, oh, the kite and the key and he discovered electricity and, and you know, no one had ever thought of it <laughs> before Ben. <laughs> and it's just, it's interesting, Benjamin Franklin being the first, uh, the first to discover electricity. It just seems like, well, did anyone see lightning and, uh, you know, before Ben? <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm going to share my screen real quick. All right mentioned uh, the Society of the Cincinnati, right? Mm -hmm. They 
created this statue here at Incan's Oval, which is, explains some of the deepest mysteries about Philadelphia. Okay? But one of them, the one we're talking about, is the idea that Ben Franklin got the electric fire from Prometheus. This is a side panel on this statue right here. And if you notice, these are characters kind of embodying uh, agrarian society. You see the cat with the wheelbarrow. They got some, uh, you know, uh, soldier types. Like uh, game and dogs, animals, you know, hunters, yeah, husbandry. Woman's carrying her own load, right? Mm. And they all are going in one direction, right? They all looking one way, going one way. But something else got Ben Franklin's attention. What might that be? Mm. This right here. What Ben Franklin is staring at is a very important statue. You can tell its importance in the fact that it's centered in the courtyard of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. These are the iconic Rocky steps everyone runs up, right? And what is every, what is Rocky Balboa running up to? Prometheus strangling the vulture. Remember we said the Thebans... What was their emblem? The black vulture, right? Wow. Here we have Prometheus, who is a titan. He's, he's one of these characters down with Ptah in ancient Egypt, right? He's strangling the vulture. In, in the mythology, the black vulture had Prometheus bound to a rock of eternal torment where he would eat out its liver, but because Prometheus was immortal, his liver would grow back and then the vulture would eat it out again. Right? So... And when was this sculpture, This when was this made? Was, the artist is named Jock Lipschitz and... Because it, it, it looks out of style compared to the other ones. Like, it, it seems more of a modern sculpture. It is a modern, absolutely. Uh, Jock Lipschitz is also responsible for Spirit of Enterprise. If, if you've seen some of my uh, other videos, the one with the dude with the giant penis mm. ejaculating the eagle, Jock Lipschitz... Must have been plugged in, man, to the deepest of mysteries. Well, it's, you it's, know, it's funny. Philly. It's funny you mentioned that because there is uh, like a, I don't know what you would call this, a local legend or sort of, you know, local lore in Philadelphia that Penn's treaty from, I don't I think when you're facing the east, 
he's holding it in a way that it looks like he's holding his penis. So some, you know, maybe the teenagers call it Penn's penis. And I heard, I don't know if it was a video of yours or someone else, but they were sort of looking into that and thinking maybe this is, you know, maybe there's something more to this. It's not just a joke that he's holding his you know, treaty, this piece of paper in that position, maybe it's alluding to something, maybe fertility, maybe it's a joke that, you know, hmm. I'd have to explore that. I'm not. For, and, and what statue is this again? In center, in center city, right at the, um, you know, the pen standing atop of uh, city hall, I believe it's. Oh, I'll check that out. Yeah, I, I have to check that out. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised, you I, know. Yeah, I, I, I'm trying to see if I have that spirit of uh, enterprise image on this slideshow. I don't think so. Hmm. It's funny the but, first the first time I ever went down to Philadelphia, a friend of mine moved down there, and this was before I listened to uh, you on a podcast. I was just sort of kind of new to a lot of this stuff back then. I went for a little walk and the first statue I came across was a statue titled the hermit. And I found that so interesting because that's one of the, you know, uh, earlier cards in the tarot deck. And I mean, I kind of have been on this hermitage <laughs> learning all this stuff. And um, I forget exactly what part of the city that is in, but I walked from West Philadelphia across the river. And yeah, I think that's near you, Penn. Right, yeah, I remember being in a college area, and I saw this hermit, and to your point about there being 5,000 statues just all over the place, I mean, it really felt like uh, uh, a fun uh, discovery, like, here's this hermit, like, I did. how could I have looked that up? I didn't, you know, I didn't, like, search in my phone, like, weird things to find in Philadelphia, but that was my intention, was, oh, let's go and see what's around here, and the first thing I find is, is the hermit, but uh, when it comes to New Haven, there's another connection, and we're talking about Egypt, so I wanted to ask you about uh, Hermes and where he stood in the Ptolemaic sort of worldview was he an important figure thoth uh to to this group of thebes uh because new haven seems to have this syncretism with hermopolis magna or el ashmoon interesting huh yeah well thebes what is called thebes is actually a collection of about two or three temple centers right one of them being Hermopolis. And huh. in the clash of, of the Titans, they say Hermes is neutral. He hasn't taken a side against the Thebans or the he hasn't taken a side against the Thebans or the Memphites. He's letting the free will decision making and the knowledge, wisdom, and overstanding determine their fate. Huh. You know? But what he's doing is recording everything in what, you know, we would call the book of life. Yeah. And so he's an active participant, but not 
polarized, you know? Yeah. That that would be how I would uh, characterize Hermes or Toth's role in the Clash of the Titans. So what does that mean? I wouldn't be surprised if what we would call nefarious forces uh, access Thoth's information or Hermes' information, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's how I would see that. Wow. That's Ma'at, Ma'at and Tahuti are neutral in the clash of the type clash of the Titans. Ma'at being kind of like the embodiment of universal law. Hmm. You know? Like uh like the elements. The elements don't choose sides on this either. The rain fall on everyone, you know? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Everybody got their own skin in the game on that account. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, I so I hope I made the point when I pulled up uh, these images. Let me uh, just make sure I made this point. Because I showed with Ben Franklin that Ben Franklin was looking away at something, right? Mm -hmm. And that he was ultimately looking at Prometheus. Remember that panel I showed you where everyone is moving in this agrarian direction, but something else got Franklin's attention. What is it? Is Prometheus strangling the vulture? Right? Right here. So what does that say? A, it was Prometheus who gave Ben Franklin electricity or electric fire. You know? Right. And, uh, yeah, I just wanted to make that point. Yeah. It's, make sure I clearly articulated that, that. What the public art, this is again how these Clash of the Titans continues, where uh, the Memphites, the technology driven of Kemet, they gave, they gave Ben Franklin this technology, you know? Right, and now we see Freemasonic groups like uh, Memphis and Mithraeum. Right, I think that's the name of this, uh, the Order of Memphis and Mithraeum. We have Memphis, Tennessee, where they have this great big, uh, you know, I don't know if it's a casino or what, but it's a pyramid-shaped building. Um, certainly seems like they've kept these very ancient, ancient dramas alive. They're carrying them forward into the present and... Uh, to fulfill uh, prophecy, I think so. I mean, it really seems like that's what well, to manipulate historic and prophetic timelines. Right, right. Well, and and to bring it back to Penn's time, we have this age of prophecy going on. Right in in the 1600s, the century before, um, well, during when Philadelphia was established, but before America became America, you had this whole group of of people who were sort of feeling a, a newfound uh 
revelation. At the same time, many people were becoming disillusioned with the church. I recently interviewed a guy named Ronnie Pontiac who wrote a book uh, called American Metaphysical Religion. And he says that at that time, I think mid-1700s, there was only about 15% of the population going to church in the United States because you know, times were tough and people had to be out working, doing things, you know, not everybody went uh, to church. But my point being that there was a sort of uh, religious energy in the air. People were sensing something coming. They had this belief that they were in the last days and guys like Penn and, and uh, well, for the Native Americans, there was uh, Hiawatha and the the nameless one you know uh, who saw this new change coming right this prophecy whether it was native prophecy or christian prophecy people were were experiencing this sort of religious sense of what was to come yes well i think that's tied in with uh a key character that you had mentioned in the email, Elias Boudinot. Mm. He was a founding father. Uh, he was a president of the Continental, one of the Continental Congresses. I think he was president of the Continental Congress during the Revolutionary War. Mm. Okay. He, he wrote the peace treaty for Great Britain and the United States. Right. And it's a very relevant treaty because I think it set the stage for the massive debt crisis the United States is facing right now where we hear Congress saying like, oh, we got to raise the debt ceiling. Where did all that come from and who are we owing all this money to? Right. Sad to say we have to take it all the way back to the founding of the nation and Elias Boudinot, who kind of set the stage where if our money, and I heard this on Rich Man, Poor Dad, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and it didn't make sense. This thing with Elias Boudinot didn't make sense until I heard that, where the author Rich Man Poor Dad, Rich Dad Poor Dad says money is debt. We shouldn't look at it like uh, an instrument of currency, more so than an instrument of debt. And that's what Elias Boudinot did. He created this as an instrument of debt, meaning our currency would have no recognition on the international stage unless we use it to pay off war debt, you know? And so that was written into the peace treaty of the United States and Great Britain by Elias Boudinot. Wow. But another thing that he did was he kind of made it national policy to recognize the birthright of indigenous people being like the indigenous of this land being Israel. 
and that these were the ones who, through divine birthright, can enter Jerusalem and to incorporate that birthright and that uh, leg- that you know prophetic legacy into America and use it to create the new Jerusalem. And this kind of, you know, when we see why, and this has become re- relevant today, right? Where Biden, what is driving this dude's foreign policy? We're having water crisis in multiple cities and they not getting no federal assistance. But we send in a half a billion dollars to Is It Real? We send in a half a billion dollars to Ukraine. You know, the uh, Ashkenazi homelands. What, what's going on? What's going on? It really do go back to Elias Budina and his book, A Star in the West. Don't believe nothing Ross just said. Get that book yourself and read it. That thing is, you know, and this, right. He ensured that all of this became national policy while he was in office. But to just close it off and tie it in with your initial question, what did he do when he left office? He founded the National Bible Society. And spawned so many, I guess what we would call evangelical orders and, Mm -hmm. you know, orders that are, they look at this nation as a nation that has a specific importance in end time prophecy. And what, what would that be? If you trace, if you look at all those orders, goes back to Elias Boudinot. And another important thing that he did, he, he founded, he was a founder of the society of the Cincinnati, you know, and uh, helped them evolve their newer name, or I guess their more public name, which is the Taminin Society. The Order of the Cincinnati is known by most people as the Taminin Society. Hmm. And that's just to tie it again to some public Phenomena we see, the Taminin Society was known as Taminin Tigers, right? So what's the football mascot of Cincinnati, Ohio? The Bengals. The Bengals. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, so that's these two uh, dimensions of the Society of the Cincinnati and the Tammany Tigers being embodied in one emblematic, you know, symbol. Well, that and, you know, being up here in the East Coast, I mean, 
Tammany Hall was famous for its corruption. You write about that in the book. I was just speaking to this author. He wrote The Sacred Count here about the, the Mayan long count. And him and I have had several conversations over the past two months about, you know, indigenous culture and sort of the hidden history of America, much of what you talk about in your book. And he told me about Tammany Hall and its importance and how it came back to this gentleman, Tamanend, excuse me. But I find it ironic that, you know, Tammany Hall kind of evolved into this very corrupt system that New York State has really been iconicized with. Like, I mean, if you think about New York City, what do you think about? You think about the Big Apple, you think about crime, you think about Rudy Giuliani, you think about the mafia, the mob, and even to this day, New York is very much run by this sort of mob politics. So um, it's just fascinating how these things just didn't come out of anywhere. And Tammany Hall was responsible for immigration policy in New York. Ellis Island bringing in uh, certain groups of people from Europe into New York City. And again, that's a big, huge part of American identity. I mean, so many Americans, you know, when you ask them where they're from, they have some sort of Ellis Island story like, you know, I'm an Italian immigrant or an Irish immigrant or, you know, so so on and so forth. And uh, I think that was all sort of planned by these orders like the society of cincinnati you know to to bring a certain to, you know groups of people into the this new land to help you know rewrite history and and write the algonquins out of history really yeah because uh well i think we have to take it back well who are the ordered society to cincinnati you know uh it's, of course, it's tied in with the idea, again, how when this nation was founded, it said it should be no crown. We already talked about that, right? Like George Washington, he's not going to be crowned king. But there should also be no inherited nobility, meaning... Regardless of who your father is, your father could be a prince or whatever of some bloodline, right? You shouldn't inherit public uh, benefits just because of who your father is. That's a principle this found this country's founded on, right? But the officers of the American Revolution and their French counterparts, they felt like, yo, we fought to make this nation, to birth this nation. We should have some birthright. So they founded the Society of the Cincinnati. And that's what it is. It is, if you are a descendant of a, a officer, not just a foot soldier, but if you are a descendant of an officer of the American Revolution or the French counterpart, because, you know, the French basically sponsored uh, the American Revolution. If you are officer in 
the French legions that came and fought over here, like Lafayette, right? Would be a good, obvious example. Uh, then you got birthright to certain things, man. That's who the Society of Cincinnati is. And Boudinot took that birthright a step further by making them the Tamanin Society, named after Chief Tammany, the signer of Penn Treaty. They made him the patron saint of the United States, right? And... Members of the Tamanin society, like they consider themselves the true Americans. That they, by birthright and their legacy fighting in the American Revolution, they can be the behind the scenes decision makers of a lot of things that go on in in this nation. If you look to see who's on utility commissions, who's creating hydroelectric and, you know, industry scale decisions that are going to impact the nation. More often than not, it's going to be someone in the society of the Cincinnati. Who gets to come in the country? Who's setting immigration policy? Ellis Island. Who's running Ellis Island and bringing ones in and kicking others out and all of that? Society of the Cincinnati. These uh, Tamanin Society, you know? So they're, they're not a secret society. Because they do everything. What you can Google the Society of Cincinnati or the Tamanin Society and get everyone's name going back forever. You know, since it started. So they're not a secret society. You know everyone who's in it. Uh, they even have some honorary memberships. For example, the Bushes were granted honorary membership into the Society of the Cincinnati. That says a lot to me, you know? Uh, so, yeah, I think that's an important dimension to know of them. Hmm. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. I appreciate us sort of parsing that out because, again, not a secret society, but some of these groups just manage to position themselves in a way where, uh, you know, they're just off center stage. They're not quite, you know, in the f main frame. They're not right in the, in the center of the view. They have other people like Ben Franklin to, uh, to, to fill that role of, uh, figurehead, you know, and, and maybe even Boudinot with his book, a star in the West, but, his book kind of connects some uh, theories that were maybe more prevalent back then. Uh, they've sort of faded now, but these ideas that the people who came to North America prior to Columbus uh, were not all 
coming along this bearing straight, like maybe some anthropologists like to tell us now, uh, there was more ideas about pre-Columbian expeditions from groups of people like the Welsh, the Norse, the Chinese, and of course, uh, people from the Mediterranean and Africa. You write about Abu Bakr II in your book and how he not only traveled from Africa to North America, but he went back and then again back to North America and left some sort of evidence of this, a drawing of Atslan, uh, which is in Wisconsin, Spring Green, Wisconsin, I believe. Wow. Back then they, they would have called it, you know, Astalan. But up there in Wisconsin, there are so many mounds. It's incredible. There's some man-shaped effigy mounds, bird-shaped, you know, a variety of different shapes. They even have an underwater, well, mastodon (laughs) carved into a rock underneath Lake Michigan. So clearly there's a lot of evidence pointing to an ancient, sophisticated culture. They've even found things like coffee beans and chocolate in pottery shards up in this region, which proves that they were trading with you know, at least people in South America, we can assume that because of, you know, things like cocaine and tobacco being found in the tombs of pharaohs that, you know, they were probably trading those things, you know, uh, eastward as well. But yeah, it's fascinating. There's this whole, you know, uh, hidden history of American exploration. And I'm wondering if, you know, do you think Society of Cincinnati or people in this sort of milieu were part of, you know, wrapping those loose ends up so people didn't look into it? I mean, do you think that was a part of their mission, you know, to 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 give people a, a very decisive narrative of how North America was populated and leave no room for questions? Absolutely. Um, well, I would just say like on one level and I'll just say like the racial level, right? Uh, the Western perspective of history has attempted to minimize the African impact on human events, you know? So the whole idea that a continent as vast as Africa had no mariners, you know, that's driven a lot of the historic narrative that the inhabitants of the Americas had to come from Asia across the Bering Strait, you know, But then on a deeper level, it really goes back to the Punic, what they would call the Punic Wars, the wars of Rome versus Carthage, where the Carthaginians were master navigators. And the Carthaginians were a colony of Phoenicians. Phoenicians were a colony of Ethiopians. And they had a global trade network, 
You know, it's if you want to study their global trade network, look up the Wangara, W-A-N-G-A-R-A. Right. That would be a title of the salt, like the kings of Mali. They, you know, had the uh, gold mines of the Wangara. And many people think the uh, empires of Ghana, Mali and Songhai that they were just had dominion over the African Sahara. Now, these were global traders, you know, where the Americas were, yeah, man, this was a big part of their network. And this goes back to Solomonic times. This goes back, it's it's well recorded in the Bible. If, if, If we, you know, what does Solomon do? He linked up with Hiram Abath, who is an Ethiopian merchant they know as Tamarin, right? And Solomon gave Tamarin the choicest ports of the Mediterranean, okay? Uh, Tel Aviv, it's modern-day Tel Aviv, being one of the most significant. And what did Solomon ask? He said, hey, you could have these choices ports. Just let my priests travel on your ships. Right? And Tamron or Hiram, he had a fleet called the Fleet of Tarshish. And if we know where Tarshish is, that's what we call today the rocks of Gibraltar. They're the mouth of the Mediterranean into the Atlantic, right? And Hiram's fleet of Tarshish would go on three-year voyages in the Sea of Tarshish, which is the biblical reference to the Atlantic Ocean. Where are you sailing to in the Atlantic for three years? You're not just going to Great Britain and back, or Libya and back. Nah, you're you're circumventing the Americas. And they had a northern. They they could follow the north wind uh, up through the British Isles, Iceland, Greenland, and then they're in Newfoundland. You know. Or they could sail down to, Af- to the coast of Africa off of like where modern day uh, Ghana is, modern day Nigeria, and catch the trade winds that would take them straight to the Caribbean, right? That's the trick with Gibraltar. If you just leave out of Tarshish or Gibraltar and try to travel the Atlantic, you're not going to have the current, current sea currents or wind patterns that'll make it a graceful trip. You either have to sail down to the coast, west coast of Africa, near where the Niger Delta is, or you got to take the north winds. And these were the Carthaginian trade routes from ancient times. 
We got to study the Punic Wars to get a good understanding of that. Because the Carthaginians' primary goal, their major strategy against Rome was keeping them out of the British Isles so they couldn't access the North Wind and keep them contained in the Mediterranean so they couldn't access the wealth of the Americas. So the Carthaginians have been sailing to the Americas from Solomonic times. We can document, right? And uh, they evolved by like medieval times into two competing trade federations. One I already mentioned, the Wangara, right? This was that Ethiopian, Phoenician, West African, international trade network, okay? Who, because of the destabilization of the Nile Valley, they centered themselves in the Niger River Delta. These are the empires, you know, again, it's Ghana, Mali, and Songhai. Those empires weren't just regional, they were global, you know? This was the, uh, what they called a Silk Road for, in what, in medieval times, you know? The other trade collective were called Radonites. Okay? They were based, and the Radonites were basically post-Roman, after the Roman Empire collapsed in 476, right? And was resurrected in 800. What was resurrected? The Radonite Merchant Trade Network. And that's why they were running the Crusades and Columbus, you know, Columbus was, is, is a Radonite. He didn't, why didn't he know what was across in the Americas? Because the Wangara was keeping them out. And it wasn't until the Wangara network lost control of Gibraltar, you know, the, the Moorish collapse of Spain, that you have Columbus and these Radonites being able to Explore the West, you know? Mm. And I would say that's a continuous way, continuous, y'all get the idea what I'm trying to say, of the old world and the new. What we, in our minds, is the old world and the new. Right. The Americas have always been in touch with the old world. It's just, a trade network that was oppositional to Columbus and them boys, you know? And that's why you find Phoenician archaeological evidence throughout the Americas. Mm. Copper mines up in the Michigan area you was just talking about. Uh, Right, in Lancaster, out by Mike, they find uh, Phoenician writings. Mm. You know, there's so many uh, Hebrew phonetic loan words 
in the Algonquin language. Shechem being like one of the most evident and obvious, Shechem meaning high priest or high priest king in Hebrew, uh, as well as the Nile Valley. You know, the Shechem is like the king of kings, you know, the Shechem or Shechem. Right. Right? Right. So then you find Shaksamoxen, place where the kings meet, you know? Right. So there's so much. And also the word, which I've always read as Sachem, but you could pronounce it Sechem, right? And well, that's, that's, yeah, that's the word I'm referencing. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. You know? And even Algonquin is classified as an Abugida. Mm. Okay? Y'all look this up. The Algonquin language is an Abugida. Meaning it comes from geese. It comes from the liturgical language of Ethiopia. Like we have ABC for the first three words of our alphabet. An Abu Gida is the first four letters of geese. Abu Gida. Right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, man. You gonna tell me that's coincidental? No. It's because these Ethiopians, even when you study the Atlantic Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean was known as the Ethiopic Ocean for a number of centuries. How and why is that? Because it was a part of this Wangara trade network I was mentioning to you. So... Wow. Yeah, man. It's, it's That's very relevant history that because for a number of decades, you know, they wanted to be able to justify color discrimination. So they had to minimize the humanity right. of ones, you know, and right. say they don't have no place in history. They're not responsible for nothing. You know, they was just running around uh, straw huts waiting to be picked up, you know, and exploited is the narrative they wanted to tell. So all these dimensions of history had to be erased. Right. You know. And. uh, Yeah. But. Like I said, I watch some of your shows. I see y'all are coming with a, you know, you're dismantling that angle, that historical narrative. And yeah, give thanks, you know, because if you really want to know the fullness of the story of the Americas, yeah, you got to open up your mind to the reality that Ethiopians. Carthaginians, West Africans did a lot to shape the history of the Americas. Abu Bakr, who you had mentioned earlier, more than likely, more than likely, who we call the Aztecs, was Abu Bakr 
coming over to the Americas with hundreds of ships and creating family trade networks with the indigenous of Mexico and Central America. Mm. You know? Now, I'm sure you've seen these massive Olmec heads that are found, these megalithic stones that are carved in the shape of a human head. These are, you know, attributed to the Olmecs, who themselves are mysterious in the timeline. They sort of just appeared, right? Archaeologists say they're not really sure where exactly they came from. And, you know, some people interpret the the features of the Olmec heads as looking distinctly African. And I'm wondering if you've looked at that and if that's a part of this, possibly. Absolutely. Well, this is tied in again to another chapter in the Clash of the Titans. What we would call the first and second intermediate periods of Kemet, where there was major destabilization going on in the Nile Valley. And it, it, it caused the Thebans, the Asarians, to seek refuge in the Americas. So my, I don't know if I would call it a theory or opinion, my angle on it is that where Olmeca came from was the Nile Valley during the destabilized periods, right? And uh, specifically the 17th dynasty during the second intermediate period, okay? So this is the bloodlines who founded the 18th dynasty, the ones that are considered the... uh, the restorers of of Ma'at and Kemet, you know, the ones who righted a lot of the wrongs and, you know, the Thebans. The Thebans are the Grecian Olympians and they're the biblical Israelites. Okay? And I think historically who they are, are is Omeka. You know, uh, yeah, I'm going to just throw that out there. I do have, I do cover it on some videos I have up on my Rospin 188. And that could be another episode because, you know, it's to make those correspondences. We will be here on that the rest of the day, you know. There is so much to get into, and we've already spent about two hours. So, yeah, Ross, we might as well wrap up now before we get off on another tangent. I really appreciate you spending the time with me and sharing all this wisdom because I feel like a lot of people, you know, because of this anathema, 
have lost touch with their true origin, right? And we all share a common origin as human beings. So anything I can do to help bring this information forward and help people, especially melanated people, realize like you might not be, you know, the product of this terrible time in history. You might actually be someone who was a part of Native America, you know, before Columbus. I mean, I think that's a, a truth that's dawning on a lot of people these days. And there's a lot of evidence that's been sort of hidden away because of this racial prejudice that's very unfortunate. One thing that I've learned about is there's actually Hebrew inscriptions on a mountain here in Connecticut on a rock. This is what I'm talking about, man. Yeah. So it just this keeps what I'm talking going. about. We on both sides of the equation. And my thing is. We got to think both and as opposed to either or, you know, right. from Solomonic times, Africa and the Americas were connected and the people were connected. So I'm confident I have bloodlines on both sides of the waters. You know what I mean? And there is a like polarized this thing is polarized in a lot of people's minds. Like ones, like let's say you got a, a a guy or a brother, someone who's like, yeah, I do have American indigenous blood in me, right? Someone who identifies like as a African. They'll be like, oh, you trying to deny your Africanity, you know? And that has been at one point in the conflicted history of us in these times, there was this idea of shunning African ancestries or African identity, you know? But I feel like just because you recognize that you may have American ancestries, you're not denying your African ancestries, it should be both and, you know, because there wasn't this void of African connection or African presence in the Americas pre-Columbus, you know? Right. So, yeah, we got to embrace it all. And our story does have to be told if you want to know the fullness of of the story of the Americas, you can't uh, not factor a whole continent, particularly the one if you want to take the uh, safest, quickest way across the Atlantic that the currents and the uh, wind afford is right off the coast of West Africa, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't not factor that in uh, the equation. So give thanks for the opportunity to build on that. And I look forward to coming forward and maybe touching on who are the Olmecs. Because another thing, too, 
there's a lot of tradition, tradition, I guess this will go forward to what they call Atlantis, where when you study Kemet, hey, they say the ones who found it, Osar, he came from the West. You know, he came from the underworld, which the West is, you know. It's under the world. It's on the opposite side of the world. The first underworld was the West. There's seven underworlds. Before you get underground, you had to come West in Kemet tradition. And that's where they say Asar ultimately came from in founding Kemet, right? So there's been exchange between the lands from long time and the confusion of nations, races, tongues, and complexion has added a lot of complexity to it, you know? But uh, yeah, man, so for, for ones to be able to come together and talk about it without fear, shame, or prejudice is important. Agreed. Agreed. And it's the right example for others, you know? So give thanks, Mark. Yo, it's so wild, right? I gotta say this before we close out because I saw you on Forbidden Knowledge News. Chris Matthew, I think, is that his name? Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I have been on his channel before and uh, so I'm subscribed to his channel. And man, I was thoroughly impressed with your, with your with your presentation, man, because it started with you uh, focusing on uh, what's the boy uh, Saint Count Saint Germain, who's a character. This local we didn't even get into the Wissahickon today too. That's something else we're going to have to get deeper into, right? But Count Saint Germain lived up here where the queens meet up in the Wissahickon, man. He lived on that what's it, uh that Pangean microcontinent too. <laughs> oh and man. Planted a whole lot of seeds. Even the uh you were talking about those angelical movements like uh Seven Day Adventists. Right. And uh I don't but a couple of the other orders like America's true religions. You know what I mean? These hmm. things starting here. He spawned them right here. Right? So when I saw like, oh, someone's breaking down Count St. Germain, let me tune in. Right? And I thoroughly enjoyed that part. But man, when you started decoding New Haven, even though I saw your name, I didn't make the connection of like, oh, this is Mike's boy. This is Mike Wan's boy. I done met him. He got great mystery. He's got uh, free your mound, right? I'm just listening to you to code New Haven. And man, I was like, yo, this brother, he's on it like, like what? You know, like, oh, that's too kind. Thank like, you. he decoded New Haven like I would. And then to find out, oh, because I, what happened was I shared the video. I'm in a group track 
with Mike and other geomancers, right? So I shared your video in the group chat. And Mike was like, yo, this is my man. You know him. He's trying to get you on the show. <laughs> That's how all this unfolded. So, right. you know, I'm saying all I have to say that your work speak for yourself. You know? Thank you. Uh, and I'm thankful it unfolded that way so that I even just have a deeper understanding of your angle, where you're coming from, and what you're dealing with. You know, mm, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm glad it unfolded that way, too, because now you you see where I'm coming from in my interview style. I try to like throw things in. So, yeah, it's better that, that you you were aware of that ahead of time. If you're ever coming up this way, you know, feel free to, oh, to, to get in touch. I'd love to, to that. love to show you around. Mike's still got him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Way it sounds like too. a nice spring adventure. Indeed. Indeed. Well, Ross, Ben, remind the people where they can find you. You got a website. Uh, you got an Instagram. You also have uh, an Instagram uh, clone faker who's going around. So just be careful, folks. Make sure you subscribe to the right I don't, Instagram. I'm not Trust me, I don't I don't really deal with IG too much. OK, I just realize if you don't have an IG, you don't exist. Yeah. You know, sad to say that's, you know, what it is like. But, uh, yeah, I will not slip in your messages, your right. DMs talking about, hey, you want a virtual massage or <laughs> whatever. I'm not offering anything like that on IG. So, yeah, if someone approaches you feigning to be me, I'm not that one. Yeah. Okay. Unfortunately, stop to see shop that. on the internet is rossben.com. Right. And uh, I'm in the process of transitioning my book order fulfillment to Amazon. Uh, and that should happen soon, you know, like probably within the next couple of, of weeks. Okay. And uh, That'll just help facilitate international as well as timely mailings. So a lot of times I might not be in town for any given stretch. And, uh, yeah, it'll just help for better fulfillment, you know, seamless, because Amazon is printing the books and shipping. And I resisted Amazon for a while, but sometimes you got to get outside of your get get move out your own way mm. you know what i mean sometimes you got a paradigm or a belief system that's not really serving your best interests mm. and i had certain perspectives about amazon that just in the real world the internet world i gotta just grow up and accept some things you know what i mean the big boy runs the market. It's what it is. It is what it is, you know? So uh, y'all can look forward to that coming soon, you know? Yeah, I hope people do. And the links will be in the description. You could, of course, search Ross Ben on Amazon when that's all through and you'll get all the books there. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad it's going to be widely available. You know, maybe, uh, yes. maybe this will end up turning out 
better than you thought, right? I, I don't. I feel it. I have I already, the same suspicion about that. Amazon. This is a part of my growth and evolution, man. I already feel it. Mm, good. Well, right on, Ross. I really appreciate this and the kind words you just shared, of course. And yeah, folks, go check it out. Ross Ben. All the links are in the description. He's got a YouTube channel with a dozen videos, tons of content. He does a really awesome show called From the 40th Parallel with our friend Mike Wan. And yeah, I'm looking forward to connecting with you on that. Maybe we could talk about New Haven and, and link it in because even Yale has that 40 on the 40 thing. They they started with 40 fo folios. That's what they call it. The, the mysterious 40 folios that founded Yale. And what that refers to is 40 books that were basically like the beginning beginning donation to the school uh, and when I saw that 40 folios I was like okay here we go <laughs> let's see what this has to you know what this brings because I know that 40 is not accidental right so yeah I'm, I'm looking what forward. degree of longitude y'all on y'all on the 41st yeah yeah the 42nd is the border between Massachusetts and Connecticut so we're somewhere between 41 and 42 interesting yeah I look forward to that day you're on the 40th parallel decoding New Haven. Right I have right. friends in New Haven. I've been like, yo, get on it. You know what I mean? Because they geomancers, but everything in its so everything happens for a reason. Well, I, and, uh, I'll guess they listen to this. And if they are listening to this, I'll be there on the 22nd of this month, March, for, you know, 322 Day, which is Skull and Bones. They have their 322 number. So we're going to sort of depower that number by gathering in sovereignty and peace uh, on the Yale campus. And I'm going to do what I normally do, take people on a tour and expose some of the things they have wow. going on at the campus and hopefully elevate the consciousness on that day because it's a palindrome too 322 2023 so hopefully we get some, right. some people there hey, just to connect that with everything we've been talking about i think the ultimate meaning of 322 is revelations 3 chapter 22 and that Revelation 3, I already told you, that is the prophecy of the Church of Philadelphia. And verse 22 is the reference or the prophecy of the synagogue of Satan. So if you're a part of the synagogue of Satan, you can't go around saying that shit. Right? Right. You can't go around like, yeah, I'm in the synagogue of Satan. Like, people would be uh polarized against that yeah so they identify they put their fingerprint they identify their works they say who they are through the 322 mm. revelations 3 verse 22 where in the prophecy of the church of philadelphia they talk about the synagogue of satan you know wow so just wanted to drop that jewel in there. I appreciate that. I almost want to ask you one last question, if I may. I well, know, come on with it, man. <laughs> looking forward, I know you're the type of guy that looks forward as an astrologer. 
Do you see anything interesting unfolding? I mean, especially next month, Pisces in this year. I mean, 322-2023, I don't know if that if they'll let a date like that pass up, you know, the significance of that. They right. might let we, something unfold that. I day. hadn't thought about that. The power date I've been focusing on is August 12th, 8-12-2023. And that's tied into the Philadelphia Experiment where the original Philadelphia experiment occurred August 12th, 1943. They didn't re on the bottom side of the 40th parallel. Mm. They repeated the experiment in Montauk, New York, August 12th, 1983. Right? Creating a 40 by 40 hole in the fabric of space time, 40 years chronologically, the 40th parallel spatially, right? And so if we stay on that rhythm, August 12th, 2023, they're going to be pushing some button, man. They're going to push some button. Which one? I don't know. <laughs> well, maybe <laughs> they're going to push some button somewhere, you know? So yeah. that's where I got my eye on. Right on. Well, Ross, thank you so but much. But yo, three, two, two. You're right. In this palindrome year of 2023, mm. that's another date we should be attentive of. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, give thanks, audience. This has been the first of hopefully many conversations with the great Ross Ben. Go check out the great mystery Philadelphia, of which we talked the most, and of course, free your mind and your mind will follow. And until next time. Enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. All right, and that was our conversation with the great Ross Ben. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, I met Ross Ben in Philadelphia, and he gave my girlfriend and I a tour of Wissahickon, which is a park in a Germantown area uh, north of the Art Museum in Philadelphia. And uh, believe it or not, it's pretty wild. I mean, you're in the middle of one of the largest cities on the eastern seaboard, and you get into the middle of this park, and uh, it feels like you're in the middle of forest, truly. And that's coming from someone who spent a lot of time out in the woods. I love trees. I love trees. <laughs> I'm a tree hugger. Uh, and, and now, thanks to, to Ross, I'm, a, I'm an earth lover. I'm a mound sitter. I love sitting on mounds. Uh, actually, as a matter of fact, Ross brought us to a mound. We had a seat, sat down, uh, just sort of took in the, the energy and the, the sights around us. It was very peaceful, and I felt like in that moment, uh, a sense of confirmation that I had felt this connection to the earth before uh, and now thanks to uh, Ross's wisdom I was able to confirm that I had in fact been feeling something um, so that was a really great opportunity and great blessing for Tara and I and uh, yeah that moment really stuck with us as we explored the backyard of New England, our backyard here, over the past year and uh, some months since. Um, 
yeah, that happened in 2021, I believe, the first time Tara and I went out to Philadelphia, uh, and this was when we, this was when we went to Mike's old place in Millersville. This wasn't the time when we went to see him in Amish country. That was last year. Uh, but anyways, Ross, it, it means a lot to me to have him on the show. Uh, he's somebody that I look up to. I look up to his work. Uh, I've been a fan of his work quite for quite a while, longer than I knew, knew who he was. Um, or, well, I should say longer than he knew who I was because around a year into, um, well, actually, I think it was about a few months before my podcast really kicked off. I was probably podcasting a little bit, but nowhere at the level that I am now. And I sent Ross Ben a crystal pendant, one with blue kyanite in it. It kind of looked like an electric guitar. It had that sort of uh, the hips to it, the way an electric guitar does. And uh, yeah, it was just a really cool, neat pendant. And I sent it to him because I thought, well, I don't really uh, any reason to talk to Ross Ben at that point in time. So let me just put my <laughs> foot in the door and send him a nice gift. And, uh, and yeah, I think energetically that was like a token that opened up the pathway for uh, this conversation, you know, uh, sort of like a, a kindness, good karma, you give a gift, you receive one. Uh, but Ross has given the gift that keeps on giving with his many books. It's not just the great mystery Philadelphia or free your mound and your mind will follow. He has written several really excellent books. Um, let me pull them all up. So he's got the Dogon Decoded. He's got... Hold on. Rocks of Ages, the first and second edition. Um, of course, Great Mystery Philadelphia. 5G Wellness 101, Thriving in an Environment with Crystals and Sacred Stones. So, yeah, hopefully we'll have uh, Ross Ben back on to talk about the knowledge of the Nomo, the Dogon Decoded, and, of course, crystals and rocks of ages, how they fit into the whole 5G trap that we're all exposed to if you have to live or commute to a city through a city chances are you're exposed to 5g so go over to rossben.com check out the books he's got like i said 5g wellness 101 free your mound and your mind will follow knowledge of the nomo the dogon decoded original rocks of ages and great mystery philadelphia and uh, rocks of ages has an updated edition the anu edition i'm not sure maybe these are completely separate or altogether different i don't know but either way you can contact Ross, contact Ross Ben uh, through his website. And you also get an astrology reading. Um, so very cool. Be sure to check out the show that Ross Ben does with our friend Michael Wan on his YouTube channel from the 40th Parallel. Mike also posts that on his YouTube channel, Susquehanna Alchemy. So you, you've most likely heard me talk all about that before. 
But today's episode, really, I mean, we only scratched the surface. There's so much more in this book, Great Mystery Philadelphia. We didn't even get into the Ben Franklin side of things, really. Uh, So maybe I can just read real quick something from his book that I felt like we, we couldn't leave out, right? There are things in this book that are essential to understanding how this whole situation works. So I'm going to read from page 13, not giving anything away here. I think we, uh, we sort of touched on this top, this page, this topic, um, Manipulating historic and prophetic timelines. Manipulation of historic and prophetic timelines is nothing new. It is an ancient magic that traces from certainly Roman and probably Babylonian times. For the purpose of this work, we will identify four ways of manipulation. Anathema. Pervert and distort prophetic teachings. Learn prophecy, then enact historic events to prevent the prophecy from being fulfilled. And then finally, learn prophecy, then enact historic events that mimic fulfillment, but ultimately serve nefarious intentions. Now, wow, if that is not uh, connected in some way to nearly everything we talk about on this show, then uh, maybe you need to adjust your listening ears if you haven't, haven't seen that. But that's a big point for me. I like to weave that point into each episode if I can because I really truly believe this is uh, this is spot on you know when I read Ross this is great mystery Philadelphia several years ago I thought wow this is uh, this is exactly what's going on so anathema means to make as if it did not exist it manipulates prophetic timelines by eliminating any reference to certain prophecy The most significant prophecy made anathema by Rome is the first book of Enoch. Enoch is the first prophet in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. The only ancient church to retain this book within its Bible considers it the father of all prophecy. As first prophet, Enoch was highly honored and frequently referenced among early Hebrews and Gnostics. The Essenes honored the book of Enoch and fragments are among the Dead Sea Scroll. Enoch's teachings are the foundation of biblical prophecy and symbolism. Revelations is a redacted summary of Enoch's prophecies. Wow. Wow. Think about that. Think about that in the context of what we've talked about on this show fairly recently. I mean, I have been getting into this whole millenarianism apocalyptic worldview stuff because of my research into skull and bones but i mean think about it if they're playing out the book of enoch the first prophet and they gave us this sort of redacted version uh in the book of revelations i mean what does that say about all the (laughs) all the the interpretations of the bible you know through that revelations lens i mean we're really getting half truths there maybe we're getting a manipulated truth because you know as you can see it's not the full it's not the full thing it's not the full book of enoch so ross ben goes on to say several early church fathers quoted and or based doctrinal teachings in accordance with the book of enoch including tatian 
in 110 to 172 CE, Clement of Alexandria, 150 to 220 CE, Tertullian, 160 to 230 CE, Justin Martyr, 130 CE, Athenagoras, 170 CE, Lactantius, 260 to 330 CE, and Origen, 186 to 255 CE. Latter church fathers began to discredit Enoch, the book and his teachings. These include Julius Africanus, Hilary of Tours, Theodore, Jerome, Chrysostom, Philastrius, and Augustine, who discredited Enoch's teachings in City of God, CE. 354 to 430. Then Emperor Justinian in 543 CE anathematized the book of Enoch, eliminating it and any other scriptures that referenced it and all related teachings. From this point, the book is fully eradicated in the Rome influence world. Wow. So I'll stop right there because we don't want to bite Ross Ben's style. He's already given so much. And folks, you know, if you want to keep reading obviously you know what to do you got to go to rossben.com and pick up this book the great mystery philadelphia uh, with over 300 pages it's a perfect book to have on your shelf if you're obsessed with this hidden history like i am uh, and free your mind and your mind will follow it's a much shorter book but it's a great addition to all this and it's it's one of these like um eight by fourteen style book so it's bigger it's got a lot of images in there and uh it's definitely something that you can bring around to friends and uh you don't seem like a total whack job because it's 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 8 by 14 the font's bigger there's a lot of images and maybe that's the conversation starter you need so that your family doesn't think you're crazy for being a, a tree hugging mound lover like me uh, I don't know. And maybe they'll understand when they're able to see in their own hands the diagram that shows that Ross put in, in this book showing you how the electromagnetic spectrum is very, um, well, it's, it's understood. We understand how these waves of energy not only move through the earth, uh, but how they move through the human body and how they move through things like, well, this computer that I'm using to, to create this podcast. So anyways, this has gone on quite a while. If you like this, please go over to the Substack where I have some more bonus content relating to this episode. I put out my notes on Substack for this episode. I'm going to do that from now on, uh, take my notes for guests on Substack, and then just publish them. And maybe that could be a good way for people to kind of see what goes into the podcast behind the scenes and also if you like researching this information there's plenty that doesn't get included in in the the final conversation you know i often take more notes than i need and uh yeah maybe there are some you know lingering uh, rabbit holes in the notes that are uh, yet to be explored and and we need the listeners like you whoever you are listening to go out and, and trace it down and say, hey, Mystic Mark, you missed this. Check this out. You should talk about this. And I might say, oh, I already know about that. But I need those uh, reminders 
to 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 plan for this crazy show because things are things are coming in and out. I mean, this is this is an ever changing uh, landscape here, and I cannot do it without you. So, humble listeners, please support the show on Patreon, Substack, or Rockfin. Uh, you can also support the show by buying merch. We have merch available in the form of apparel and accessories, you know, whatever you call it, uh, clothing. And then we also have some handmade pendants made by yours truly uh, available on our co-fi store. That's ko-fi.com slash crazy. And all of the links are in the description. You can go to myfamilythinksomecrazy.com. You can go to rockfin.com slash myfamilythinksomecrazy. You can go to substack.com slash myfamilythinksomecrazy. Uh, you know, it's all there. Uh, if you mess up the, the, the link when you're typing it in, go back to the episode description and just click it. I put the hot links in there so it's super easy. And uh, yeah, if you want the show to continue to be value for value, uh, you got to support us. Because otherwise, I might take a different route. I might cut the show in half and do, you know, the first hour's free and the last two hours are, are for subscribers only. And we might need to do that at some point. So support the show now while everything is still value for value. And uh, yeah, be on the lookout for that change if it ever does come. I mean... Like I, I'm not trying to like hold this over, <laughs> over your head or something, dear listeners, my uh, friends that I have never met. Uh, I just am trying to come up with a way to say this that doesn't sound like I'm begging, but also reminds you of how important it is to support. Because I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't all that different from you only a few years ago, and. Even though I wasn't making a lot of money as a delivery guy, I would sign up for every podcast that I liked and supported and listened to on a regular basis. I would sign up for all of their memberships, whether it was Patreon, whether it was through their own website, like the Higher Side Chats, uh, or Sam Tripoli. I mean, for a while, he only had Patreon, and then he switched to Rockfin, and I was right there with him. I said, I'm not going to miss out. I'm not going to stop supporting my boy, Sam. And then, you know, funny enough, I start working for him. But yeah, either way, I do think, uh, although maybe that might not happen for you, uh, there is a sort of magic that unfolds when you support a podcaster or a podcaster's guest, like today's guest, Ross Ben, someone who, you know, I reached out to on Instagram. I purchased two of his books. You know, I supported him. Uh, and, and then look how that's worked out for me. Now I can, you know, call him a, a, a friend in a way. So yeah, a lot, a lot to be said. Maybe this outro is a little longer than usual, but I, I, I'm also recording it during the daytime. Usually I record the intros and outros in the wee hours of the late night. So you might hear me sounding kind of tired. I don't know. I probably sound the same right now. Um, my voice is a little low register, but yeah, I, uh, I think I'm going to try to record these during the day from now on. 
and we'll see if that changes things but patreon has been weird if you have signed up for the patreon this year just double check and make sure you're still subscribed because there's about five or six people who uh, just were lapsed out of the uh, cycle you know when patreon does their payment cycle every month I had a hundred and something patrons and then I look the next morning and it's like 10 people less and each month there's a few people whose cards decline or you know they decide to unsubscribe for whatever reason and I don't care because for every one person that uh, cancels their patreon subscription five more join and that's been really cool to see the numbers grow but I don't know if it's you know on an individual basis or if it's something patreon's doing for part of me feels like you know they're shadow banning the patreon i really hope that's not the case so if you do have difficulty supporting the show on patreon consider substack or rockfin instead and please send some tips on rockfin i don't get enough tips on my videos we gotta we gotta boost the tips i'm gonna start doing more live streams on rockfin and youtube so yeah we're gonna we're gonna keep growing uh keep flowing keep making this dream a reality and i cannot do it without your help so if you want to see this show get to episode 1000 someday uh sign up on the patreon the substack or the rockfin and i will shut my mouth and let you glide on through your day thank you for being here folks and uh Enjoy your day wherever you are in the now. I'm a little extra terrestrial, trying to stay human in a cesspool of professionals. But I confess too much off of the tongue. All my aunties and my uncles shield the ears of the young. I be saying shit and they don't know where it's coming from. In like a hundred years, we went saw bomb with free guns. Check the facts, check the Fed, check the stars. Stanley Mines was murked for a water fuel cell car. They each they own, you can stick with your old ways. But eat the rich, you drink the motherfucking Kool-Aid. And I can see the red on your lip stain. White skin, blue collar, pure American made. Fuck it. You can keep your blood soaked heritage. And run the soul off the moon landed narrative. Yeah, my girl thinks that I'm embarrassing. My folks think I'm nuts, but never question the parenting. Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy. Connecting dots, but it's all kind of hazy. Good morning in the net, feeling like I'm Dick Tracy. My pap thinks I'm un American and shady. Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately. Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily. You could tell me that the president's an alien, it wouldn't phase me. My family thinks I'm crazy. Think that I'm off in the deep end. Want too many Netflix docs on the weekends. But check the budget for a military defense. Tell me we ain't scared of something not within reason. Steel beams, another 1492. And 9-11 was the red, white, and blue. And you be lit off the floor, and ain't got a clue. All your dreams just shit on a Rockefeller shoes. Don't believe a damn thing a politician ever said. Ain't one brick left to go up in the Fed. They still got bricks of cocaine to make crack. Oxy's killing the working class, FDA's whack. Talking like this, got kids talking behind backs. Too much to unpack, so they talk smack. And I'm just trying.
trying to converse with my clan, but it ain't fan. So I'm here setting up camp. Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy. Connecting dots, but it's all kind of hazy. I'm on the internet, feeling like I'm Dick Tracy. My pack thinks I'm on American and shady. Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately. Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily. You could tell me that the president's an alien, it wouldn't phase me. My family thinks I'm crazy. Anything out, so you know, maybe I. 